Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. From his signature thumbs up airplane selfies on Facebook to a Bhangra reggae Bali funk band, Dr. Paul Singh is a man of many passions. In this episode, however, we're going strictly clinical. I wanted to speak to Paul about a procedure he has devoted significant efforts to, laser floater removal. In this episode, we will hear from Paul about the moment he stopped telling patients with floaters to just deal with it and his take on the risk of adverse events associated with vitreolysis and much more. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today I have Dr. Paul Singh who is joining us with Off the Grid. And Paul, man, I just want to say thanks for coming on and I cannot wait to talk to you about all things Paul Singh. Oh man, thanks for having oh, me. Oh man, this is going to be, fa- be. be fantastic. So Paul, I think I first started hearing your name kind of coming through like the glaucoma circles, like doing a lot of glaucoma stuff. But then there was this this like wave, like this tidal wave, the tsunami of <laughs> floater removal press. And it was like, all of a sudden, floater removal is like this crazy new topic that's everywhere. And this seems like something that you have really been a champion for. I just want to like back up. I want to back the bus up to the beginning. When was it that you had a patient or what was the tipping point where you're like, Man, I'm gonna yag that. Oh yeah, I'm no, gonna yag that. What? Tell me the story. It had uh, to be something. I'll make. I'll try to make it as quick as we can. The Cliff Notes version. But um, you know, first of all, I was a skeptic like a lot of people out there. I had no idea about vitreolysis or floater removal. So I had a, I had a patient of mine who's a physician, right? Every year came in with the same complaint. I got a Weiss ring. It's bothering me. I can't move. I can't see without moving my eye. So he came in every year. I kept the same, the same thing. Just deal with it. Not <laughs> You'll my live problem. with it. It's not, not my, my problem. problem. Right. It's all good. Get used I do to other it. stuff. Exactly. I'm a cataract refractive glaucoma guy. So anyway, what happened is all of a sudden uh, he gets so frustrated. He goes, I'm going to go to a retina guy. I'm like, cool, go ahead. And knock yourself out. Yeah, I'm like, all good, man. So he goes to the retina guy, really good guy. And the retina guy's like, wait, you're fake You're 45 and you're a doctor and you have a Weiss ring? Uh, not doing a vitrectomy. Right. So this guy gets really frustrated. He went to the East Coast to a guy who's been doing this vitreolysis procedure for a long time, and that's Dr. Karakoff. And he used this kind of specified laser. Well, this guy, this doctor, comes back after having the treatment done. He's like, oh my God, Paul, you've got to start looking into this. It worked. So I looked at his, his vitreous and it was gone. I'm like, holy cow. So literally that week, my old monster water cooler <laughs> like laser finally died. So I went to Academy that year and Alex, a company that makes this laser, um, actually had this new procedure, a new laser came out and I needed a YAG anyways. So I bought the laser just because I needed a YAG. So it was like, I didn't think about it. Confluence of Serendipity, man. Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> so then I came back and I'm like, I'll do a couple, you know, laser floaters here and there. After doing one or two of the kind of the, the prime kind of white ring kind of patients that were safe, I saw these patients come back. I'm like, oh my God, A, it worked and B, it's safe. And then three, these are happy patients. These are like patients coming back saying, I can read again, I can drive again. These are pr- practice advocates. Oh my God. They, start, they started basically exploding out and telling everybody this is a procedure you got to do and telling their friends and next thing you know we're getting people coming in without advertising just people needing this there's a, such a need and a void of, of something to treat these patients with well it's really interesting how and this is the classic case of unmet need right there's an unmet need of people who probably don't need a vitrectomy that's maybe a little bit more aggressive than than we would recommend but are c- chronically bothered by obscurations in their visions floaters 
and the technology and maybe it was, you know, do you ever think like, man, if this guy wasn't a physician, maybe I wouldn't have taken his like story so seriously. But the fact that you had a young physician patient who you felt like you, he, was a, he was a trustworthy source and he, he, he sought this guy out and came back. And I feel like that, there's a real pearl here and that's, we can learn a lot from our patients if we just listen to them, don't you think? Absolutely, I mean, you know, we, look, we think about cataract surgery. You have a guy who's a 2030 cataract, or 2025, a glare at night to 2060. His vision is on the cell is not bad, but you're like, well, if you're having complaints and you're having difficulty with daily functioning, we'll do something about it. It's the same principle. If you have a, someone coming in with a floater and saying, you know, I have to move my eye to kind of see, or I can't read it, I can't drive at night because it gets in the way, that's as significant, for me at least, in seeing the outcomes as a cataract patient. So I think you're right, listening to them, not ignoring them, and not poo-pooing them. These people have been trained for so many years that nothing can be done. Right. So when these guys your come floaters in, are your friends. Your floaters are friends. Get used to them, call right. them names, right? right? And then they come in, and you'd be amazed at how many people I do. I'm just, I see a floater in the middle of vitreous. So I'm like, hey, does this, do you have a floater? Oh, my God, yeah, doc. Well, now we can do something. Really? I thought nothing could be done. There's those people in your offices. Right. Without even advertising, it's just there. They, and they've been trained to ignore it, and it really bothers them. All right, so give me the cliff, again, kind of the cliff notes version of how do you categorize these floaters? Obviously, Weiss ring, very clear. Um, but I know there's a couple of categories you've sort of defined and helped sort of categorize. I want you to, in your own words, sort of explain that. I'll, I'll butcher it. So yeah, no worries, man. Well, the first thing, you want to have symptomology. You want to have symptoms. If patients have symptoms, that's the only thing I treat. Um, just because I see a floater, I don't do anything about it. But we categorize it more in kind of depth and where they're located. The key factors, you want to pick a patient who has a floater that's in the middle of the vitreous or kind of mantle anterior. If it's too far posterior by the retina, you don't want to treat it. And if right. it's too close to your lens. So I look at positioning, lo location. I look at also, is it easy for me to document when I see the patient. Can I see it and I, can I correlate without the patient's symptoms? A lot of times you'll ask a patient, hey, where do you notice it? Does it come from the top, bottom, left? Where does it come from? Right. And they'll describe it to you. So being able to correlate it with the patient. Looking at the density, there's amorphous clouds, these string-like clouds. The amorphous clouds actually do very well, but they can take multiple sessions sometimes. So right. expectation building. The ones that I do not think are treatable, really, are the ones where they're like asteroid holonosis. Uh, these right. thin little lines and thin dots and fibers that some of the younger people come in with. We've tried them on those patients. They don't seem to, seem to be as happy. But the larger amorphous clouds, like post-cataract surgery patients, those large Weiss rings, uh, those people are extremely happy. And we've actually seen quality of vision improvement based upon objective testing, too, on those patients. Um, so do you have an eye trace? Is I do. Is that a technology you like? I, yeah, I've used it a lot for this. And I've, I think I've seen some data or something you're going to present on that. I mean, I don't want to burst the balloon. <laughs> but no worries, man. Is, I mean, can you talk to us a little bit yeah. about what you see with eye trace? Yeah. So f first of all, you know, we, we've noticed now we actually presented ASCRS this year and last year on data on uh, multiple retrospective study on patient satisfaction. So right. we've known that patients are happy. And they would come in saying, Doc, I can see better. Quality, contrast is better. We couldn't objectively show that. So finally, we went ahead and did a study using the eye trace, which is a basically a rate, a lot of people know, a rate tracing. Right. And basically, it can tell you contrast, sensitivity, and high wide aberrations, and compare from cornea versus internal optics. Long story short, pre and post vitreolysis, we've seen in these patients who have amorphous clouds in the middle of the vitreous, Pre and post, we saw a significant, significant difference in hyoid aberration, improvement in MTF curves as well. So we're seeing now the quality of internal optics. It's not just subjective patients saying, yeah, I think I'm happier now. It's these people now, you can correlate the objective finding with their subjective improvement. And that we were actually presented already to ASCRS and submitting for publication now as well. Oh man, that's fantastic. So the question that I think some people, whenever you're trying to learn a new technique, you know, I, I think we all are fairly adept. If you're a cataract surgeon, et cetera, you know how to use the ag laser. So I don't think there's a, a huge probably learning curve for that. For that. 
I know it is a little bit more energy than we're used to delivering. Can you speak to what your settings are like and what a treatment session looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the, if you don't mind me saying, yeah. the, the idea of, of YAG laser, it's not any YAG laser. There's specific type of YAG laser. There's really two companies right now. Um, for full disclosure, I do speak for Alex, a company that you use the laser on. But there's also a company called LightMed, which makes a laser that also has similar type of elimination. Bottom line is, what was the reason why people did not have a good outcome historically with trying this procedure? We couldn't see right. the vitreous. We couldn't see spatial context. Where's the floater? Where's the retina at the same time for safety? And so you have normal YAG lasers have an illumination tower coming from below or off axis. Right. What these guys did with these lasers is they made an illumination tower central or coaxial. Right. That gives you that spatial context and the ability to see. So number one, we have to make sure we use the right technology. Also, we look at the actual energy delivery. There's a, a physics uh, lesson that we, I learned a lot, which is the idea of what happens when you increase the energy on the laser and how much energy is dispersed in the eye. It's a non-linear relationship. Bottom line, when you increase the laser energy, the amount of energy increased on the, on the actual, in, in the eye itself is non-linear. So one millijoules, we have about 110 microns of dispersed energy. You go up to 10 millijoules, it only goes up to about 220 microns. So a very small increase in how much dispersion of energy in the eye, which is why, in terms of settings, we feel comfortable going to five, six, seven millijoules, a lot higher than a YAG capsulotomy. Right. But because we know this basic data, we're not causing an increase, a huge amount of increased energy in the eye. Number two is the how quickly the, the energy is absorbed. It's about a three nanosecond pulse. So when you fire the laser, it's a, the energy is dispersed or absorbed within a few milliseconds. Right. So therefore, you cannot have heat building up in the eye. So doing 300, 400 shots, you're not causing heat to build up, right. which is why we sometimes will use 200, 300 shots for a Weiss ring at five, six millijoules. And for amorphous clouds in our studies, sometimes three sessions with like six, 700 shots as well. So you're using much more energy than you're used to with a YAG laser for a capsulotomy. And that's why historically, a lot of the outcomes were not as good because people were using energy levels of like two, three millijoules. Right. It's going to push it away. Right. And you are here, we're breaking and vapor and that's the other misconception. People think we're just breaking a thousand pieces. We are breaking it apart, but we're also vaporizing. If you look at actually the energy, we're actually causing plasma breakdown. Solid. So phase transformation. Exactly. Okay. Fourth state of matter, right? Solid right. to gaseous state. But it's happening in such a small area. So you break apart a floater, but those pieces, then you go after those pieces to vaporize those smaller pieces, which is why it takes sometimes multiple sessions and multiple shots, unlike a YAG capsulotomy, just breaking a piece right. of capsule. Right. So, you know, have you had any patients who've had, um, for example, macular edema or uh, retinal tear uh, from these sessions, you know, just kind of curious if that, that's one of those things theoretically I'm kind of thinking in my mind, would I worry about that? Absolutely. It's a great, it's a great question and a great worry. We should all be skeptical about that stuff. Um, so good news. We had, uh, we presented a paper at ASCRS looking at over 1,200 patients retrospectively. Over 400 of them were actually over four-year follow-up. We had not seen in that study any detachments or retinal breaks. So the, the, the reason why we're not we're seeing that is because if you think about a YAG cap slotting, people always bring up the YAG cap as a kind of a historical data right. set. But when you're hitting a YAG cap, the laser energy, right, hitting the, cap, the capsule to the zonules to the vitreous base, you have a direct connection. Right. In the vitreous where we have it's no like a direct spring Exactly, right. spring system. Here we're just vaporizing these collagen strands in the middle of vitreous. Number two, if you look at um, our data sets in terms of kind of severing, the definition is severing of vitreous strands and opacities. That's vitreolysis. So we're not actually pulling traction. The, the pathophysiology of a detachment is traction on the retina, right, right from the vitreous. So we're not right. seeing that. More importantly, if you look at all of our adverse events, what we see is pressure 
of spikes that can happen. That's the okay. one thing I see more than anything else, especially if a patient's pseudophagic right behind the lens. We found it in a subset of patients, about 15 now, about 3,000 cases where pressure's up to like 40 plus. So we limit the number of shots in certain patients if they have glaucoma or if the float is too close to the lens. So that's great data, Paul. Um, one other thing I'm, I'm kind of curious about is, is, is coding. You know, when you do a new procedure, that's always the question. And how do we, how do we code for this? Is this a patient pay um, procedure, sort of a premium procedure? Are there, I think there are codes for this. Where, do, you know, what's the recommended uh, route for that? And I guess the disclaimer there is everyone has to make their own coding billing decisions. Thank you. Uh, so <laughs> I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not going to yeah. uh, put you on the spot. Any yeah. tips you can share with yeah. us? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a consultant. I'm not a, I'm not like Corkin Consulting or anything like that. But I will tell you this. Um, it, is, it is a little bit of an ambiguous area right now. Um, so I personally do bill insurance because if you look at the code uh, for Medicare, for vitriolysis, it's, it basically says severing of vitreous strands and opacities with a laser. Now, in, in our opinion, for a lot of these floaters, what we're doing is a combination of vaporizing. We're also severing the strands. It's a collagen matrix. Right. So you're severing these strands, and some of them you're actually causing the floater to fall away too. So I do believe that's what we're doing in combination of vaporization. So that's why I do build the code. And I'm, what I do make sure, though, is that if you do that, you make sure you, on the, in the chart, document symptoms. In my consent form, it says, yes, these affect my daily function. Yes or no, they circle yes. They also circle yes or no, that they understand that this may require more than one session. Right. And third thing, they realize it may not be able to get rid of all the floaters. Right. But Documentation is huge. I also like to document the float or some with some imaging, whether it's a slit lamp photography, fundus photograph, B scan, OCT. We've done some great OCT work now showing the pre and post. Something to document the floater. And then if you can afterwards show that you had some resolution, that is huge. That way, if you ever do get audited hypothetically, you're using right. the code the way it states and you have symptomology to back up why you did it. Right. The other adverse, the other way of doing it, rather, is coding it basically on just say it's an uncovered un un procedure and doing it out of pocket. But if you do that, you have to do it for everybody. You can't pick and choose. So really right now, Corcoran's kind of having a hard time figuring out what to say to everybody. So really right. my, my advice is you do coding, make sure you, if you do built insurance, make sure you document very aggressively and very good about everything you're doing, especially symptomology. Yeah. We're just sort of dabbling. We have the same laser that you have. So we have the Alex laser and it's a fantastic laser for just YAG capsulotomy. I mean, it's fantastic. Best I've ever used. Uh, I don't speak for them. I'm not a consultant. Um, and we are dabbling, and we're trying to sort of get get started in this program. Any resources on the web you could point us to? Does LX have um, yeah, some resources online? That they do. They have a really good resource if you want, if you want to go to LX.com, and they actually have a floater uh, floater site that talks about has videos like from me and some other providers around the world who've done it, have some advice on, and some cool videos that show you. Um, on iTube.net and also YouTube, there's some videos on, and I have some as well um, on how to do it and some instructional videos. But there is a learning curve, and the main I might point to anybody starting out is pick a pseudophagic patient. You don't want to worry about hitting the lens, right? right. You want to have a good view and a white strings are the best one to start with because you can correlate those very clearly with the patient's symptoms, right? right. So white strings are in the middle of vitreous, you know you're far away. And a clinical pearl is if the floater's in focus with this LX laser, right. with illumination system, if the floater's in focus and the retina is out of focus, then you have enough space to, to fire. Right. So those are the kind of ones I would start with. As you get better and you feel comfortable utilizing the laser and being able to titrate the illumination, et cetera, then you can move to more anterior and posterior floaters as well. But I do think there is a learning curve just understanding how to visualize and maximize visualization and then feeling comfortable going to higher levels of energy of five or six, seven millijoules. Right. We, we freak out. It took me about 100 cases to feel comfortable going to seven or eight and just staying there and zapping right. for like 500 shots. That does take some time. 
And there's a special lens that's required. This is not just your JAG capsulotomy lens that you're using, correct? Yeah, it's, it's a special lens. Actually, two companies make lenses specifically designed for vitrolysis. Uh, Volk makes, and I have no financial interest in this, but they help to make a lens called a Sing mid-vitreous lens, nice. which is maximizing visualization all the way from the lens all the way to the retina. Um, they also have another one called the Idris lens. They're both very good lenses. The uh, Ocular Instruments also makes a set of three lenses as well, which are all designed specifically for maximizing visualization. Oh, man. Paul, I, I think we're going to wrap it there. I wanted this to be a quick, like, hard-hitting, <laughs> just the Bam. facts, just the facts. Okay? <laughs> no worries, man. But I wanted to make sure that you know that we're going to do another podcast at some point in the future where we sort of unpack. I want to know more about your story. You're a musician. Yeah, man. You've got a lot of really cool things going on professionally. And so we've just hit the very tip of the iceberg. All good. Uh, but, man, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. As you can tell, Paul is truly a champion for patients with floaters. His dedication to fulfilling an unmet need is how ophthalmology and frankly all of medicine advances. If any listeners have further questions on vitrolysis, don't hesitate to reach out. Paul is passionate about this education. So with that, thanks for listening to Ophthalmology Off the Grid. For more episodes like this, visit itube.net slash podcast. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to rate us. It would mean the world. Until next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.